Welcome to Asia Perspectives from the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm Jason Winsunis, Senior Editor for Thought Leadership in Hong Kong. And our topic today is climate change and the technology that might make a difference, slowing it, stopping it, or at the very least, offering a alternative to older carbon-intensive technologies. Environmental, social, and governance investing, or ESG, has been grabbing more headlines as well as assets under management in the past few years, especially in Asia. Since about 2015, when the world's single largest investment fund, Japan's General Pension Fund, signed up to the Principles for Responsible Investment, that seems to have started the ball rolling. And with countries around the region announcing net zero targets lately, investment in fossil fuel alternatives and less carbon intensive technologies is likely to pick up even more steam. At the Economist Intelligence Unit, we've been following this trend, issuing a number of reports and articles yearly to track developments and challenges around ESG investing including the climate week events that were held near the end of last year. From an investment angle, ESG has a lot of hair-splitting exercises that asset managers have to contend with, and a lot of it has to do with what counts as green, or at least green enough to get a high ESG rating and attract investment from some of the world's largest asset owners, such as Japan's pension fund. Uh, But for technology buffs, that whole materiality and taxonomy question of ESG investing can be a bit tedious. So last year, we swept all that aside and we went straight to the source to ask asset owners and asset managers globally about what technologies they were investing in that they believed, ESG ratings aside, had a reasonable chance of having a positive impact on climate change. Now, details of that survey can be found in the commissioned report, Tech Imperative, Looking Beyond ESG Investing to Reinvent the Future. There should be a link in the show notes for you to download that report, but you can also find it on the Asia Perspectives website. Type ESG into the search box, and that may, that'll bring up uh, the report and many others on the same topic. So the main research question that we asked was, which technology themes have you invested in and which do you believe are most likely to have a positive impact on long-term climate change? Not too surprisingly, the number one answer from investors on both counts was renewable energy, which would include solar, wind, hydrogen, biogas, etc. We ask this question because it's often not enough to just build a better mousetrap, as the saying goes. You need investors to help take that mousetrap to scale. And scaling on a truly global level, on a global climate level, will take truly massive investment. So one of the things that we're trying to do with this report is to help bring attention to those technologies that might actually have a chance of working and that might actually get us out of this climate mess, which to be fair, technology got us into in the first place. So to learn more about the technology side of the equation, I've invited Hal Hodson, the Economist's Asia technology correspondent, who spends much of his time focusing on the electronics manufacturing industry, as well as tech tensions between America and China, to come speak about the technologies that may hold some promise for meeting all those net zero carbon economy targets that world governments have been issuing lately. So welcome to the podcast, Hal. Hi there, Jason. Thanks for having me on. 
So technically, we work out of the same office, but with your travels around Asia for the newspaper and with the COVID remote working regimens, I haven't seen you much uh, in the past year. And where are you joining us from today? I am joining from London. Uh, yeah, it is, it is now very, very technically that we work out of the same office, but I'm hoping to get back to Asia soon. So the fact that we can actually work remotely uh, may itself be a saving grace for the climate since the pandemic has forced so many people to stop commuting and driving in cars or flying on planes for business. But uh, we are still working, and that takes plenty of electricity to run all of our virtual and digital meetings and activities. So you know, are we still accumulating a carbon debt, uh, particularly here in Asia? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. The amount of carbon being used is still going up. Um, the Even though business travel is a big concern in the West, when you look at it overall, you know, it, it's, it's not a sort of vast chunk of carbon emissions. And the big problem, uh, particularly in Asia, is burning coal. Um, Asia is where 80% of the coal consumption in the world happens. And um, it's it's still growing and the amount of energy that Asia needs is still growing. And so that's kind of, you know, Asia's coal consumption and carbon emissions going up and up and up is one of the most serious problems uh, or challenges facing, face, facing the climate. And there's always a lot of uh, fanfare um, about the investments, like, for example, that China is making in clean energy. But is that still net-net not catching up? Is, is the coal still being deployed? Coal is still being deployed. It's, I, th- I think what, it's one of those ones where uh, the amount of coal being deployed is still going up, but the, the rate at which it is going up is slowing. So that is good news. Um, we've just seen uh, Pakistan actually say that it's going to stop building new coal plants. So that's also good. Pakistan's a pretty, pretty big country. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a difficult problem when you've got billions of people all needing more and more electricity year on year. Um, the quickest and easiest way to do that is to build coal plants. Other ways of delivering large amounts of electricity are just slightly fiddlier or much more expensive. Um, and so at the moment, coal coal still has a place and there's a raging debate about, you know, what is the right amount of sort of dirty carbon fuels for Asia to burn as it uh, develops and, you know, follows a similar development path as the West? So if countries could shift you know, more of that power production to renewable sources like wind and solar, that seems like it would be the straightforward solution. Uh, from our report, investors seemed ready to back that transition. But from a technological perspective, is it really as simple as it seems? Is it just about turning one thing off and turning another thing on? Uh, it's definitely not about turning one thing off and turning another thing on. I mean, from the, the, from a technical perspective, the most optimistic uh, side of this is that the price of the components, to use a sort of general word, the, the price of the stuff that you need to install a lot of solar and wind on the grid is going down quite fast year on year. Um, if you look at the cost curves for deploying solar panels or wind farms uh, and indeed the batteries that they need to be backed up 
uh, so that they can be a more reliable source of power to the grid. All of those are falling year on year. I think I saw one yesterday for lithium ion battery packs that were something like a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour 10 years ago and now they're just about to hit a hundred dollars a kilowatt hour um i might not have that number exactly right so don't uh, don't take that one to the bank but that's that's roughly the kind of uh massive decrease in cost that we're seeing so that's really good news um the flip side is that it is just straightforward, more simple to burn stuff and spin and boil water and spin a turbine and generate electricity that way than it is to install solar panels and wind farms that have a variable output. Um, and for, you know, since the invention of electricity grids, the society has been used to consistent sources of electricity electricity that is you know kind of either on or off and the big problem with solar and wind is that it is variable and a lot of the technologies that are under development at the moment are all about dealing with that variability so as far as uh deploying more solar more wind uh you know you you, you read a lot about the the gigawatts that are coming online in china or other places but is is that not the the big problem is the power grid really the thing that's sort of the bottleneck at this point there, there, there's two there's two big things one is the variability of supply onto the grid and to be clear there, there is a way to solve that for solar and wind um that is not high tech so to speak and the way you do that is just by massively overbuilding capacity um so that means that, you know, instead of if, if you need 100% of electricity supply to the grid, you build solar and wind capacity for 200 or 300%. And the idea being that when the wind isn't blowing somewhere or the sun isn't shining somewhere, um, you can get enough power from the places that it is uh, blowing and where the sun is shining that you don't need to store power. You can just rewrite, you can just rewrite energy over the grid. But even that requires some fairly tricky uh, grid engineering and power management. Um, and it is possible that whatever size of kind of uh, sector of grid you choose to say, okay, we'll have the, the solar stuff up here balancing the wind stuff up here, if the wind isn't blowing, we'll go to that solar. It's still possible that you might have a cloudy day up there and a, and a, and a completely still day down, down wherever you're trying to balance. So the, the modeling that you need to do to understand where you need to deploy your resources is itself pretty high tech and is itself still not a completely understood, understood problem. Now, something that I thought was really interesting from our survey results was that investors in Asia were the most likely to say that they always consider climate change as a financial risk factor uh, at a rate of 40% of respondents saying that in Asia versus 36% for those in North America and only 29% for those in Europe. What I found surprising is that Europe appeared to lag in an investment area that the region has, as far as headlines go, historically led in. Now, that doesn't mean there's a lag necessarily in the innovation, and surveys you know, can only tell you so much. But I'm also curious, from, a, from your journalist perspective, you know, where do you see the most activity in clean tech? Who, who are the early adopters? Where are they? Well, clean tech is a broad church, right? I do think those are really interesting numbers, and I don't immediately have a, like, an explanation for that. 
Um, but uh, one thing would be that the distribution of clean tech adoption is not homogenous in the in North America and in Europe. Think about Tesla in California, like San Francisco in the Valley is like Tesla City. Um, it, you know, there's the battery powered electric vehicles all over the place. You cannot move without seeing Teslas. Um, but go to the middle United States and you won't see any Teslas. Um, you'll see, you know, big SUVs that are the, you know, the opposite of clean tech adoption. Um, and so that's one, that's one thing that came to mind when you said that. Um, the other thing is the leapfrog effect, which is that when you don't, if you are a country that doesn't have a bunch of infrastructure of a, any, you know, whatever kind it is, whether that's rail or road or in the, in, our, in the case of our discussion, energy, it is easier in some ways because you can build out using new technologies um, slightly easier than your, your, your equivalent country in, that is further along the development path that has, think of New York City, stuffed with highways, roads, uh, pretty bad public, uh, public transport infrastructure historically, huge amounts of investments building roads and bridges. Um, and it's just difficult for New York to shift because it's kind of, it's got path dependency. It's already gone down a path. Whereas if you're China and you're building out your electricity grid, um, you are able to do things like build and install huge high voltage direct current links that can do that thing we were talking about of taking power from one place where the sun is shining or where the wind is blowing, say Western China, and delivering it thousands of kilometers to literally the Chinese Eastern seaboard. Um, and that kind of, you know, China has built tens of those HVDC cables. America has built none, even though America has exactly the same issue, which is that the wind blows in Oklahoma, and it would be great to use the wind that blows in Oklahoma on the seaboards. And they, and the cables that China has built are te technically, uh, they're exactly the same kind of thing that would work in America. It's just, it's a question of eminent domain, of moving things along, and the fact that older systems are harder to shift. That's my view, at least. And so I'm, I'm slightly surprised to hear that more Asian respondents are saying that they always consider climate change. Um, but may, maybe when you factor in those things, uh, the heterogeneity of, um, of, of adoption of sort of clean tech in, in North America and in Europe uh, and uh, leapfrog effect, it makes a little bit, a little, a little bit of sense. Yeah, it's interesting about those... Uh those power cables, you know, it reminds me of high-speed rail. You know, the U.S. still is struggling with building that. In China, they've built so many thousands of kilometers. It sounds like that's a, an area that's going to make a big difference in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a funny one because often once built, these lines are left sitting there at relatively low capacity because the wind farm on the other end hasn't been plugged in. Important to note that often these lines are not connecting to a giant wind farm on the other end, 2,000, 3,000 kilometers away from Beijing or Shanghai. Sometimes they're connecting to a giant coal plant. And the reason that they do that is because they don't want the particulate pollution from the coal near their cities, but they want the electricity from the coal. Um, and that it's a completely different reason for building a, a high voltage direct current line 
but uh, it makes a lot of political sense, and that's often what moves the needle in China. Now, when you talk to some of the, the tech companies that you cover in batteries or power grids or really any of the tech that comes across your desk, how much does climate play into their goals or their product development? You know, a, a number of the large asset owner investors that we spoke with for this report claim that you know, climate does play a role in all of their investment decisions, especially when it comes to technology. But how much of a role do you think it plays on the inventor side? I think it's very difficult to unpick what is just social signaling. And because if you ask someone, do you think climate change is important? Of course, they will say yes, right? They're talking to, a, if I ask them, they're talking to a journalist and they're representing a large company, maybe public, maybe not. Of course, they're going to say yes. Um, unless they're in a very small political niche um, that is shrinking by the day. Um, my sense, I'm thinking about a particular uh, electric car company in China called WM Motors. Um, and they're one of the kind of crop of Chinese new EV uh, contenders. And when, when I talk to them about their battery pack efficiency and why they're doing this, their focus is a little bit more on, or it seemed to me at least, to be a little bit more on the quality of the product um, and basically just meeting consumer need um, and consumer desires. So, for instance, they have a huge focus on the software and the sort of in tech, in computers, you would call it a user interface. It's not really called that in cars. But basically the way that the, the driver interacts with the car as they sit there uh, driving along, they also have a huge focus on what's called uh, the power management system of the car. And what that means is essentially um, semiconductors that uh, take the electricity coming off the battery pack and use it in the most efficient way. And the reason that's so important is that every, every I don't know, every, maybe not every gram, but every pound that you can shave off your battery pack is a huge, huge deal because as the battery, the battery pack is the most heavy bit of the car, and as it gets lighter, um, your range goes up. But as it gets, as if if you're get, making it lighter and keeping the same amount of kilowatt hours in that battery pack, then your range is kind of you're getting a double boost to your range, and range is one of the most important things, and it also goes to things like performance as well. Um, so. I guess that this is, it's a roundabout way of saying that maybe maybe it's that climate change is kind of the water that they're all swimming in now, right? I mean, for sure, if all of these Chinese EV companies, they're all extremely reliant on subsidies. Most of these come from city and provincial governments. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it's probably fair to say that the, that, that subsidization would not exist in the same way without the you know, the challenges posed by climate change and the government, the government action that is being taken to deal with that. So, but I think that, you know, that those subsidies in place, companies like WM are, I don't know that they're thinking about climate change every day. You know, I think it's just like the backdrop to the reason they exist in some ways. Now, one of the, the issues that we raised uh, in our uh, report is how can investors decide if a technology actually qualifies as clean technology, you know, at least from a portfolio point of view? And Tesla is a great example. We've been talking about them. You know, there's a lot of climate-related indexes. 
that include electric cars because they do help decouple combustion from transport. Although if the electricity that you're using to top up that car battery uh, you know, comes from coal power, similar to the example you just gave, then net-net you might not have much difference in the end from a warming perspective. But then there are companies also that get included in these kinds of, uh, like an ETF or just an index, Samsung comes to mind, which is, you know, it's actually the sixth largest holding in the MSCI Global Environment Index. Now, Samsung is not a company that comes to my mind right away when I'm thinking of uh, clean technology, but maybe they've put it in that index because of the battery technology. So I know that's uh, one of the areas that you cover a lot. How important are batteries to the climate change story? Well, batteries, so first of all, I didn't know that Samsung was in this environment, the, the MC, MSCI environment index. That's very interesting. Um, it must be because of batteries, because if it was, if it wasn't, then you would expect a company like Apple to be there. Um, but in, to Samsung's credit, they do actually make a lot of stuff themselves. You know, they are producing comp at the component level, whereas Apple, a company like Apple, their smartphone competitor is integrating at the component level, you know, the Apple at least used to buy stuff from Samsung. Um, but anyway, um, I, absolutely, batteries are a hugely important part of the climate change story. Um, the reason, well, the first reason for this, there are many reasons for this, but the first reason for this comes back to the variability of renewable energy sources. Um, if, uh, as we were discussing earlier, one way to solve variability is just to massively overbuild, to install more capacity than you need normally so that in, when, when the variability comes, you've got enough power. Um, but the other way to do it is to store um, overproduction, which also happens, the variability implies not just that sometimes there won't be enough electricity, but also sometimes there will be too much electricity. Um, and when there's too much, what you want to do is store it. And there are lots of ways to store electricity. Uh, none of them are very good. It's all kind of inefficient and you know tedious to have to do it that way the most efficient way to do it is to pump water into a dam up above you and store it there and use the potential energy that you get from doing that when it come, when you run the water back down through a turbine the problem with that is that it's geographically limited so that's great if you are norway um, and what often happens these days is that wind turbines spin in uh, in sort of Germany or and solar panels re when renewable output in northern Europe is high, uh, the grid takes all that electricity and uses it to pump water up into dams in Norway. And then when the wind stops blowing and the sun stops shining in northern Europe, all that water falls back down and spins a turbine and you get your electricity back. That's incredibly efficient. The reason that batteries are so important is because they're geography independent. Um, you can put a battery pretty much anywhere. Um, the problem with them is that they're way less efficient and they're much more expensive um, per kilowatt hour. Uh, batteries are not a very dense energy storage medium. Um, I don't have exact numbers to hand, but a, a tank of jet fuel or, or petrol in a car is just way, way, way denser than uh, a battery pack in a car. Um, and this is the reason why Teslas are so heavy uh, and the battery pack sits on the bottom of the car. Um, 
And so you can do this. You can install great big arrays of batteries uh, sort of next to your wind farm and store a bunch of energy there and use it when you need it. Uh, they're also used to not to deal with that longer term variability, but with a kind of shorter term uh, a slightly more technical balance that is about smoothing out the signal that you feed into the grid. Um, and you use different kinds of batteries for that. Um, so that's one side. Grid storage is one side of the importance of batteries. The the other side, and, and I mean, frankly, I think it's the importance of batteries in the phones and the devices that we're using to communicate. You, you mentioned this right, right at the top. I don't think, I don't think you would typically think about this in clean tech terms, but if if we're if, if if business around the world is able to minimize its carbon emissions by doing a bunch of video conferencing, um, a lot of that is enabled by the fact that you know they've got a laptop that has a ten hour battery life, um, and a lot of you know a lot of that is down to battery innovation. A lot of it's also down to more and more efficient chips. A slight side note, but um, the other big one, of course, is electric vehicles, and um, electric vehicles has kind of been the driver of the reduction of cost of lithium-ion battery packs over the last 10 years. Um, why? Because electric vehicles actually have a consumer market. And so, you know, I think Tesla just sold 500,000 cars. I can't, I don't cover Tesla very much. I can't remember if it was in a quarter or a year, but um, Tesla sales are going up. And when you sell more stuff, you are able to produce the components that make up that stuff more cheaply. And so that's good news as far as climate change is concerned. Now, as far as uh, sources for greenhouse gas emissions, you know, fossil fuels and power generation rank way up at the top in terms of volume. You know, those are number one and three, uh, according to the data that we published from CDP, the Climate Disclosure Project. But uh, manufacturing is actually the second largest source of greenhouse gases. And we didn't see much uh, interest from the large institutional investors that we surveyed for finding innovations that could change manufacturing in any meaningful way. Uh, in your view, is is that because there's just not enough happening on the tech front there? Uh, does it just come down to the power generation story again? You know, are there any tech solutions that you've seen that could help the manufacturing story be greener? Well, I'm curious about this, and I would, I, I think, I would like to see the data or to dig into the data. Maybe you can answer this, uh, answer me back on this, but. Um... My first thought is that manufacturing, the energy that manufacturing uses comes from the grid, right? So to the extent that manufacturing is emit, emitting carbon, it is emitting carbon based on the power it draws from the grid. So if you green the grid, you green manufacturing. Um, and the problem with other approaches is that it's all just an efficiency play, right? Like you're not, at the end of the day, if you're going to make something, you need to have some some matter and some energy and smash them together and you get something out in an arrangement that is useful to human beings. Um, and there's kind of no way around that. So the, the biggest thing that I can think of for manufacturing is what are your power sources? Um, and if your power sources are green then your manufacturing is probably or clean if your if your power sources are clean then your manufacturing is pretty clean um however there is there there is definitely big and growing interest in uh automation and digitization of manufacturing which i suspect comes with well actually i know comes with a a climate benefit might not be huge but it's there 
which is that um, I need to back up a little bit just to tell to get get the full context across. But um, basically, across China, when COVID hit, it became difficult to. Uh, not just get local Chinese engineers and workers into factories, but it became actually impossible to get uh, foreigners, Americans, Europeans, who fly in and do various like higher level management tasks in in factories that they contract to. It became impossible to get those people to go there. And what what has been booming is basically the remote version of those people's jobs. So instead of sending a, an engineer into your factory to tweak the design of the whatever, the, the device that you're making, the, the phone that you're prototyping in Shenzhen, instead of doing that, you have a camera system that is taking super high resolution photos of every single component on every single production line uh, across the factory and you are running machine learning algorithms that are looking for changes in the shape of those components over time to try and do things like spot errors before they happen. Um, and the reason that this is so important is that this has the potential to massively reduce waste. And in manufacturing, if you can reduce waste, you're essentially reducing the amount of energy you need to pull from the grid. And so I think that basically there's a second order climate or CO2 emissions benefit coming from this, which is that there is a, there's a confluence of factors that are pushing for automation in manufacturing. And it's very, very hard because manufacturing is actually incredibly complex. Um, and the, the, the automation happens right at the edge, very slowly. People who run factories are conservative people. They don't like to take huge risks. Um, but I do think that this is going, this is delivering a, 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 maybe marginal, I'm not too sure, but definitely a reduction in CO2, not least because you don't need the engineers from California to fly into Shenzhen as often, um, but also because it's reducing waste and thereby reducing the amount of power pulled from potentially dirty coal plants. Now, one other aspect of tech that you cover is the, the trade tensions between the U.S. and China. Could that possibly slow down the spread of cleaner technologies? Like, do you think that this might be an area of future cooperation or something that countries might actually want to compete on to get it a competitive advantage? I think, I mean, I could probably just shortcut all of my responses to anyone on these questions as it's all very complex, but that wouldn't be interesting. So I won't do that. But um the, the, my colleagues, Katrine Brake and um, Charlotte Howard, wrote a great uh, briefing on this subject uh, at the end of last year, all about the geopolitics of clean energy. And the, in, in essence, America may have a problem with using a, a lot of clean technologies if those clean technologies are made in and controlled by China. Um, and increasingly, that is the way things work today. Um, and if you think about the way that oil moves around the world and powers the world, runs the world, um, the producers of the oil have a, have a lot of power, uh, geopolitical power in that, in that equation, in the way that that world works. In, with clean tech, where you're not burning anything, at least not locally, you might be burning something in a power station, ideally not, but maybe it's gas, whatever. But with clean tech, where you're storing energy and moving energy around, then 
the idea is that the power starts to reside in the places and the people that make the things that let you do that. Essentially, the people who build the infrastructure, right? Um, and so I do foresee problems with this. I mean, we live in a world where you know, Trump says that TikTok is a national security threat. Well, surely it would be a national security security threat in that world to have a bunch of made in China batteries backing up your hospitals. You know, doesn't that sound that sounds that sounds worrying if if you're worried about TikTok being a national security threat. I think the problem with this sort of line of reasoning is that where do you stop? As soon as you go down this rabbit hole, you realize that pretty you know pretty much everything is made to a significant degree in china um china is the best place in the world to make stuff full stop it has it has the most engineering talent on the actual production side um and even though there is there has been diversification over the last few years i personally hesitate to call it a decoupling um because i think that the west is still deeply reliant on the chinese manufacturing ecosystem um, and so to, to sort of come back to your original question, will this hinder the adoption of clean technologies? I don't know. It depends what the priorities are for the countries in question. Um, going back to the numbers you mentioned that, you know, fewer Europeans are considered climate change always when making investments. If that number holds true in general in Europe and Europe is in general doing a little bit less about climate change, um, then that might that that would kind of trade off against the fact that Europe in general is a little bit more comfortable with relying on China for supplies. Um, if you think about telecoms, Germany has said it will allow Huawei to put equipment into the German telecom networks, where America has banned Huawei for years. Um, and so you might see the same phenomenon going on. But I think it, it will depend on a trade-off of priorities. You know, how important is it to you as country A to decarbonize your grid? If it's, if it's, is it more important than hypothetical concerns about national security, re-Chinese components in your electric grid or in your, you know, your country's fleet of cars? Uh, those are pretty serious questions. I don't know the answer to them, but I, I think probably it is reasonable to say that there will be some holdups in this area. And particularly there will be holdups if this kind of new nationalism starts to dominate where things are made. You know, if, if the price of a battery starts to go up in America because America won't buy batteries that aren't made in America, then for sure we'll see holdups. Uh, that'll slow down the adoption of clean technology. Now, we're almost out of time, but before you go, since uh, it's at the start of the new year here, maybe you can tell us just a couple of things, uh, top tech stories in Asia that you're tracking for the newspaper. You know, is there something that uh, tech buffs or investors should be really paying attention to? Yeah, one of the things I'm paying attention to, uh, not directly to do with clean energy, but um, the Taiwanese semiconductor ecosystem uh, is perennially fascinating to me. Um not just because it leads the world mainly through TSMC. And really, I should say the Taiwanese contract manufacturing ecosystem. Taiwan is like the quarterback of making stuff, making complex stuff. A lot of it doesn't happen in Taiwan. A lot of it happens in China. And increasingly, a lot of what used to happen in China is now being done by Taiwanese firms in places like India and Malaysia. But um, I am paying close attention to whether 
Taiwan's uh, advantage in that area, which is the real strength of its economy, the most important company in Taiwan by far is TSMC, the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing company. Seeing whether that can persevere through some of the tensions that we've talked about just now between America and China, uh, Taiwan is kind of trying to set itself up as a Switzerland of technology manufacturing. You know, we'll make it for you, we'll make it for your enemy, just don't mess with us and leave us alone. Um, and that that's a fascinating nexus of things to me. And uh, I mean, I don't know about investors, but uh, you know, I, I, if you look at the, the the share performance of TSMC in the last couple of years, it's been dr- dr- pretty dramatically positive, uh, largely because people are buying more computers to use at home. And so there's more demand for semiconductors. And another thing on the energy side, on the ESG side, is... And this is actually a thing I'm looking at in Britain at the moment, because that's where that's where I'm based and I'm doing a bit of work for the Britain section these days. Um, but it's basically how how fast the, you know, the, the big question is, does the cost curve for renewable technologies continue to come down? And so right now off uh, Dogger Bank in northern England, uh, in the North Sea, uh, huge, huge wind farm being built with wind, wind towers that are the size of the Eiffel Tower, just gigantic hulking bits of technology. Um, and the, the, the UK has built so many offshore wind farms in the last five or 10 years that uh, the, the question is really whether, A, does that benefit the UK? Um, and B, does, it, does that lead to sort of does that help contribute to global reductions in price? Um, and also, you know, do the supply chains that allow the UK to build so many wind farms uh, continue to hold up under the strains that are being placed on globalization? Um, so yeah, those the, those are the kind those are the kinds of things I'm I, I'm tracking. A lot of uh, a lot of will supply chains fall apart? Kinds of questions. Well, I definitely look forward to reading about that in the newspaper. But that's all the time we've got today. So really appreciate your time. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Fascinating talking to you. And thank you all for as well for listening and for spending the half hour with us. For more on EIU research, please visit our website, perspectives.eiu.com. And if you're interested in the report I mentioned at the top about investing in climate change mitigation, Search for Tech Imperative when using the search box on our website or check the show notes for a link. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work for the Economist Intelligence Unit, you can email to asiaperspectives at economist.com. Thank you again from the editorial team at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Please subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode.